Hello there, and welcome to the Construction Revolution Podcast. My name is Eric E, and here on the show, we explore the latest trends, technologies, people, and organizations that are revolutionizing or disrupting the construction industry and changing what the industry will look like tomorrow. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Dr. Phil DeLuna, who leads a 57 million collaborative research program as the youngest ever director at the National Research Council of Canada, focusing on disruptive technologies to decarbonize Canada. He is a world-renowned scientist having published over 40 papers in high-impact journals like Science and Nature in the fields of CO2 conversion, hydrogen, and AI for material discovery. Phil was a finalist in the 20 Million Carbon X Prize, Governor General Gold Medalist, and a Mission Innovation Champion for Canada. He serves on the board of Carbon Management Canada, a carbon tech nonprofit, as well as a startup and mentor at Creative Destruction Lab, and develops impactful policy with the OECD, Action Canada, and the Canadian Commission for the UNESCO. So without further ado, let's get to my chat with Phil. Phil, your work puts you at the cutting edge of a lot of exciting technology developments. What new technology are you most excited about that could have a direct impact on the construction industry? Yeah, there are so many interesting technologies right now. And maybe I'll give a step back and I like to to give Phil's five-point plan to get to net zero. Uh, Step one is to (laughs) conserve what we have. So whether that's um, natural habitats, lived environments, the Amazon rainforest, let's protect the land that we have and let's try not to clear cut forests to to ranch more basically. Um, Number two is to increase renewable energy uh, as much as possible everywhere. And so that's wind and solar, uh, wind and solar, hydroelectricity, non-emitting fossil fuel um, sources of energy, which are, in fact, wind and solar, for example, are now cheaper than coal. So that's well on its way, and it, it, it just needs to be implemented and scaled out a little bit more rapidly. Uh, step three is to electrify everything, everything we possibly can. And on the, in the building side of things, you can think of heat pumps and electrification of as much of the inefficiency as uh, LED lighting, etc. Uh, electrify with these clean, green renewables as much as possible. And a big piece of that is electric vehicles and transportation. Um, electric vehicles are, are booming right now, and there's so many new models coming on this year, which is really exciting because it's becoming more and more accessible to the consumer. So what Canada needs to do is start building the infrastructure for that. And I would not be surprised if you start seeing electric vehicle charging stations um, being requested in build homes or in um, large condo builds, for example, as well, in the garages. So thinking about that is also how to prepare yourself for that transition to an electrified transportation grid. And then step uh, four is to uh, address the hard-to-abate sectors. Now, these are sectors that you cannot electrify or are very difficult to electrify and where the majority of emissions where you would expect from the construction industry come from. Uh, Making steel, making cement, fertilizer, process emissions. And in these situations, we have to look at other forms of fuels or feedstocks that don't emit CO2. And one of the ones I'm really excited about, for example, and everyone is giving a lot of hype on, is hydrogen. And so I'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, And the last step five is to capture carbon from the atmosphere. 
We got into this mess by taking fossil fuels out of the ground, extracting energy from it, and releasing carbon into the air. We have to take the carbon out of the air and put it back underground. We can't out-efficient our way out of this mess, and we can't plant enough trees fast enough to get us down to net zero. So we really need to think about artificial ways to take CO2 out of the air. Um, in the construction industry, one of the things that is really interesting to me is building materials that have embedded carbon in them or building materials that are produced in a low carbon way. And I'll give two examples. The first is um, steel that is being produced using hydrogen or electric arc furnaces or other forms of reduction of that steel that don't have to rely necessarily on natural gas or on, on fossil fuel emission. Uh, of course, much of the steel that's made today are um, based on equipment that is uh, already sunk cost and has to be amortized over uh, many years, and they will be online for much time. So the second thing that we need to think about is retrofitting those existing assets, whether it's cement plants or steel plants, with carbon capture. And that's the second piece, that's the second technology, whether it's carbon capture and even then taking that CO2 and then embedding that into our concrete and into um, our cement. Because um, when you do that, the CO2 actually hardens into a carbonate, a solid, and therefore can actually help to strengthen or at least replace some of the emissions that you would have from cement. So in the construction industry, there's so much happening right now, also on digitization, on, on, on artificial intelligence and machine learning and efficiency. But when we really want to tackle big emissions, we have to think about the life cycle of the materials that are being used in the construction industry and how do we decarbonize the production of those materials. Sounds like we have our work cut out for us. <laughs> I was actually I had a quick question on when you said in part Phil's five point plan um, capturing carbon that's already released into the atmosphere how do we do that what technologies are out there that would enable us to do that yeah well th there's a, a one a few of these technologies that are all being pioneered by uh, SMEs small medium enterprises these startups Canada is actually one of the world leaders in this there's a company called Carbon Engineering and basically what they do is they have these massive fans that suck in air or that will blow air in. And these, these uh, big air contactors that actually were designed and implemented through HVAC systems. So they took a technology that existed and then they um, uh, 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 changed it or modified it to allow it to capture CO2. So they have these big air contactors that they then um, allow and drip a, a carbon capture solution, a caustic KOH such that CO2 actually gets captured in that solution and turns into a carbonate. And then now they have that capture in the solution and they can, and they can move it out of the air. So uh, Carbon Engineering is a, is a wonderful example of a company that has gained a lot of traction recently. It's based out of uh, Squamish in British Columbia. And the, the, one of their first commercial plants is with Occidental, an oil and gas company, that it is being used for enhanced oil recovery. Essentially, they're taking mm. the carbon dioxide from the air and then they're, they're pumping it back underground to help retrieve um, uh, some of the hardest to get oil that's underground. And you may be thinking, well, you're capturing CO2 to get oil, so that kind of seems counterproductive. But if you, if you can actually sequester more CO2 underground than the oil that you r remove from it, it ends up being a net negative um, benefit. A lot of work has to be done to understand what the science and the regulation and the monitoring of that is underground um, because 
it, this is such a new field and there are only very mm -hmm. few storage locations in the world that can actually take uh, CO2 and store it underground. But the, this is one of the areas where, you know, capturing CO2, storing it underground or using it in construction materials and fuels and chemicals. I think that's going to be a massive, massive opportunity in the future. Thanks, Phil. That's, that's incredibly interesting. It's, it's such a interesting time to see all these advancements and how rapidly they're coming on, where I feel like maybe 20, 30 years ago, it was a bit slower paced in this uh, like advancements in technology on, on all fronts. But now it seems like the world's kind of mobilizing to kind of uh, fix these issues that we're facing. Yeah, I, I think that's a wonderful point. And, and to that point, I around 20 or 30 years ago, a lot of the technologies around clean technologies were academic in nature, or they were looking at them as alternatives to fossil fuels because people were worried about fossil fuel scarcity, that we would run mm -hmm. out. But then uh, fracking was invented, and then the Permian Basin in Texas, uh, and the shale gas revolution, and it became very quickly that within... Within five or six years, the United States became a net uh, energy importer to a net energy exporter. Uh, and all around the world, technologies and the advancements of being able to extract oil and gas and find oil and gas um, made it clear that we would not be running it anytime soon. But today, the drive is not because of fossil fuel scarcity, but rather because of climate change. And that drive is becoming more and more urgent, especially as younger and younger people become more and more passionate and driven to uh, understand and try to solve that problem because younger generations, uh, more and more younger generations will be the ones who bear the brunt of the worst effects of climate change, especially as time goes on. Uh, climate change is a lagging effect, similar to how deaths is a are a lagging effect in COVID-19. It takes a couple of weeks for those deaths to catch up to the initial mm -hmm. infections. It takes a few decades for the impacts of climate change to catch up to when they were first emitted. So uh, we really have to think about this as a long-term uh, shock, whereas, um, uh, you know, sort of boiling the frog analogy, whereas um, uh, COVID-19 is the ultimate short-term shock. Yeah, it's definitely hard to get people to mobilize when they don't see those immediate effects, those cause and effects. So you touched on something interesting with uh, the younger generation coming in. So I'm, I'm wondering now, you know, there's a lot of exciting advancements that can, especially on the construction industry, like impact things. Um, but one key factor that kind of determines how uh, things change is the adoption of those new practices and things like that. So what role do you think diversity plays in this conversation, particularly like at a leadership level? Yeah, I, that's a wonderful uh, question. And I think what I'll do actually maybe is give the context of, of Canada, the United States, really North America. Um, and why we need to think about diversity, not only from because it's a socially right thing to do, but also for a social cohesion, a polarization perspective, an economic growth perspective. In, in North America and in many developing worlds, our birth rate is below repopulation, meaning it's below 2 or 2.1. We cannot have, we, we no longer have enough kids to maintain the population of, of our countries. In order for us to continue to grow in terms of our economy, in terms of being able to have a workforce that can support our older generations, especially with our baby boomers entering the retirement age, and soon they will be out of the workforce and the brunt of, of um, uh, economic growth will be on younger generations. The, the answer to this is we need to have more immigration. We need to have more immigration in order to increase our population, in order to build our economies, in order to grow. Um, because of this, 
And and in America and Canada have always been countries of immigrants, um, whether that whether they were um, uh, Irish Catholics uh, from Ireland or whether they were um, um, uh, Ukrainians and uh, Germans and Russians uh, at the turn of the twentieth uh, century to uh, Southeast Asians uh, and and people from Africa and the Caribbeans today, um, we have always been a country of immigrants. The, the problem that I see is if we do not um, create more diversity, especially in leadership positions, especially in positions where decisions are made, then these decisions are being made by a small slice of a demographic that is not representative of the rest of the country. And moreover, they may not have the same perspective as other Canadians, whether that is from a, a racial standpoint, a gender standpoint, a sexual orientation standpoint. Um, it, it's always, in my view, better to have diverse opinions. And this has been proven as well. McKinsey did a study that showed diverse management teams are 36% more um, profitable than non-diverse management teams. The reason being is that you just have more brain power and you just are able to tackle problems in a more efficient and thorough way. So when it comes to tackling climate change, when it comes to the leadership of tomorrow in the construction industry or in any industry, we really have to understand that the what Canada will look like, what the world will look like tomorrow will be much more diverse. And the problems that face us, face us all. Carbon dioxide does not know borders. I mean, CO2 that is emitted in Canada, the impacts of that CO2 will be felt in China and vice versa, or in India, or in um, the, the Middle East, or wherever. So we have to come together. We have to understand that diversity is a strength, which I think North America, Canada, America has, has known this for, for generations. Um, and then we have to utilize our people in, in, in ways that fully... Um, uh, appreciate their skills and perspectives so that we can come up with more robust solutions and we can come up with solutions that work for everybody. Because if we don't, the consequence is a more polarized world, a world of haves and have-nots, and quite frankly, a world of political discourse that um, will lead to more stagnation and, and less focus on the problem. Yeah, I think there's some great points, especially... Well, all of it are great points, Phil. But when you touched on even just how businesses can be more profitable, I think when you have from that, even that standpoint, just like the profitability standpoint of, of a business, if you have everyone in the same room that has the same background, same education, they're going to be very good at that one narrow focus, but they won't have, they'll have blinders to the rest of the world or different approaches to things that you need to inject those things into your business and even into our country and our government in order to thrive and to be able to see those opportunities that otherwise we'd just be blind to, really. Exactly. Couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. So I also know that you're passionate about science communication. And this is something that I've been very interested in, especially over the past year and a half. Um, like So throughout 2020, with everything going on, uh, I'm sure you and I have both seen a wider range of effective but also ineffective uh, communications on science findings and recommendations from like from different levels and different organizations. So when you're communicating something complex to the public, how do you do so in a way that people actually understand your message? You know, I think that there's a stereotype that scientists aren't don't know how to communicate. And I would say that that was probably true um, a few decades ago or a few years ago. 
But today, science, just like the world, has really evolved in the sense that um, I believe before people really worked in silos. Um, they studied one thing, they knew that one thing. You know, you would. Uh, we were talking before the podcast. Both of our fathers worked in in the automotive sector, right? The 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 idea of of working on uh, in an automotive plant, um, getting a pension, working there for forty years. You know that 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 idea is over, right? The 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 world of today is much more dynamic. Um, people will change careers often, and that's a good thing. So I I think that scientists today. Um, just like the rest of the world, have really become much more well-rounded because the times are requesting it, the times demand it. So when I look at effective science communication, the number one thing that's the most effective, whether it's science communication or any other communication, is a strong sense of empathy, of being able to understand who your audience is and put yourself in their shoes. Oftentimes, the problems that I see with science communication is they do one of two things. They either speak too high or they speak too low, meaning they either speak too technically to an audience that is not technical, or they dumb things down to an audience that knows what they're talking about. And on one hand, actually on both ways, they can either seem um, disinfected and out of touch, or they can seem arrogant. Um, so what, what is really important in science communication, effective science communication, it's to keep things simple, but also be respectful and understand. Um, uh, you don't dumb things down, simplify. And to be mm. as empathetic as possible to the audience that you're speaking to. To try and uh, slow your speech or to try and um, illustrate your points with stories and, 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 and examples from the real world and analogies that other people may understand. Because everyone can understand it, it's it, it, the the issue with science is that there's a lexicon, there's a language, and and so when I when I talk about science communication, it's really more about translating that lexicon, translating that language to what other people can understand. That makes a lot of sense, especially just. I always like speaking with analogies or stories because I, I find that those things get remembered more. And they can kind of tie it into someone's brain a little bit more that they can reference something and then think back to what the context was around it. Mm -hmm. I've always said that um, people will never remember what you say. They'll remember how you made them feel. Mm. So, and again, it it really boils down to that sense of empathy, that sense of emotional intelligence, which I think a lot of people underappreciated or don't didn't, especially scientists, right? They, the scientists are very quantitative. They're very data driven, um, and and you you have to kind of tap into a side of yourself that it, it, that appeals to um, that appeals to emotion, that appeals to feeling, that appeals to things that are more diffuse, and that's how you communicate with people, and that's how you get you know your science across. So in terms of getting like getting things across and trying to really get your message to be understood and, and driven home, I know one thing that I've seen in past organizations, but also maybe in the wider construction industry, is around the like adoption of new technologies or even sustainable practices. It can be hard to communicate that to upper management or to other other people in the organization. So what would you say to recommend to someone who's maybe interested in these areas? but don't know how to communicate it internally in order to win people over to their idea. 
Yeah, that's a great, great, great question. And, and this is something that I have to do uh, a lot for my work is, you know, communicate above and below the organization, you know, uh, to, to influence whether that's soft or hard to my bosses and then to the people who report to me. Uh, and in both situations, it's really about convincing them and trying to um, come prepared with facts uh, and building that case. So if you want to implement a new clean technology, um, you need to do your homework and understand what this t clean technology means and what its implications are for your business, for your, for your construction operations, for, for whatever it is. The, the, the thing that I've come to realize about clean technology is everyone loves it until they have to pay for it. So one of the things that a lot of people are, are realizing is that um, the, the role that government has to play is to de-risk technologies uh, is in order to um, have confidence for the private sector to then implement those technologies in their operations, in their field. So, so I would say the, the, when, when you want to bring a new technology or a new idea to your management, the number one thing is to understand what, where is that um, a technology or idea in its development. Is it a low technology readiness level where it's sort of just in the lab? Or is it a high technology readiness level where you can purchase it off the shelf and implement it right away? Or is it something in between? And you have to understand what the risk associated and the cost associated is from developing something that is a little bit more fundamental and implementing that to something that's ready to go in commercial. Uh, understanding that what that risk that is involved with that gives you a, a better, again, an empathetic view of what your manager is feeling because you have targets, you have revenues you have to hit, you have projects you have to deliver on. The, the last thing that you want to do is delay that or, or put that at risk. So understand the technology and whether and what the risk associated with it is. And then second, understand what the benefits are. If the technology, it's great if the technology can save time, it's great if the technology can lower emissions, but it's even better if the technology can save money. Um, that's very rare, those three things in, in combination. So then if, if you can find two or one of those things, look for other ways to partner or get to de-risk those other pieces. I'll give you an example. If There are lots of programs um, run by, by the government, um, by federal, provincial, municipal governments that uh, provide tax credits for uh, research and development or provide um, public-private partnership funding to implement new clean technologies. Look for those opportunities and then build that business case to say, okay, this, this is going to cost this much, but we can cost share it with the federal government for this, and the impact will be this, and our OPEX savings will be this, and our carbon emission savings will be this. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it's obviously a lot of work, but uh, I think you'll find that when you get excited about a new technology and you start diving into it, it'll also make you a, a more critical thinker and, and, and understand or what technology is real, what technology still needs more development, and, and what technology is the right fit for you and your, your business. Thank you for that, Phil. That's actually a f fantastic answer, especially, um, I, I think, when you're kind of talking about, I guess, knowing technology inside and out, as well as how you can de-risk it and how to kind of put in the context that's going to make it like a slam dunk or an easy decision for those that are kind of making those decisions. That's something that I, I, I've had to learn over a long time because I've pitched things too prematurely in the past and they have not gone over well. So uh, thank you for that lesson, Phil. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, the, the pitching things and it not going well is a lesson in and of itself. So I would say 
you know, you never really know. Um, don't let perfection be the enemy of good. You, you may be looking into something and you're like, oh, I need to look into it more. I need it before I build a case. The thing is, clean technology, business, life just moves so quickly that if you, if you don't capitalize on opportunity or if you don't put yourself out there, then you may not get a shot. So I would say, yes, do your homework, try to understand. But even if it's premature, say that up front when you pitch it. Say, hey, you know what? This, mm-hmm. is, a, this is an early idea. Uh, I'm not sure if it really has legs, but it's a, an exciting thing. Um, is this something that you would be interested in if I did more homework and tried to understand it more and tried to build a case for it? So what you're doing by doing that is you're making your management a part of that decision-making process. You're bringing them along the journey and you're subtly influencing them to think that it's their idea as well because now they've become Mm. invested and they want to know more. So rather than going to your management and say, this is a thing, I want to do this, let's go do it, this is what's right, be, you know, this is something that's really interesting. This could be something that could really help this organization. This could really help cut costs. This could really help put down CO2. But I need more time to understand. Like, what do you think? Uh, have you seen anything like this before? Should we dive into this a little bit deeper? Can I come back to you in a week with, with more data? Um, and, and then that way, you're building your case collaboratively, which, which really goes a long way to just coming with something that's fully baked um, and then hoping for the best result. I like the idea of kind of getting everyone on board and having them part of the decision making and having more ownership in the idea. That's fantastic, Phil. So, Phil, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show today. But uh, before I let you go, I just want to let everyone in the audience know about your podcast and uh, some of the work that you do. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So I, I have a new podcast. I actually started with a friend of mine uh, over the, the holiday break because it's a pandemic and what else can we do? Um, and and we, <laughs> we, we release episodes uh, weekly on Mondays. It's called What's Next In? And it's a podcast about the rapidly changing world and how we can get ahead of it. It's a conversational podcast between me and my co-host, and we talk about a range of topics such as um, what's in an introduction, what's next in social media, what's next in carbon taxes, uh, technology for the aging population. What does happiness mean in in the 21st century, and how can we promote diversity and inclusion in organizations? How can we promote intrapreneurship rather than entrepreneurship, which is really about making change from within a large organization? So it's a really it's a it's a podcast about anything and everything, but um, the, the, we always talk about um, you know what we think is coming ahead in this field, and 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 why we should be thinking about it and how we can prepare ourselves. Awesome, thank you so much, Phil. So check out what's next in, and I'm sure it's available everywhere, Phil. Yep, it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and you can always go to www.whatsnextin.com. Um, to see the, the new episodes every week. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Phil. Thank you.